Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to In-Depth. I'm your host, Jill Webb. When you think of New York City's crowded streets, it's easy to forget what it looked like hundreds of years ago. Dense forests full of streams and home to the Lenape people and other indigenous tribes. Indigenous history is embedded in our city. For example, the name Manhattan, that's from the Lenape word Manhattan. But much of this history has been wiped away. You may be familiar with the physical genocide forced on indigenous people, but there's also the cultural genocide. Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, the U.S. government removed indigenous children from their homes and forced them into boarding schools. They were not allowed to speak their languages or practice their religion. They were basically forced to assimilate into white Americans. This is why one case currently being decided in the Supreme Court could have big impacts on indigenous people in New York and across the nation. The question at the center of the case, when an indigenous child is being adopted, should indigenous adults get preference over everyone else? Tribal leaders say yes. Saying to do otherwise continues the history of cultural genocide and dismantles native sovereignty. But opponents say it's reverse racism. The Supreme Court case is Holland v. Burkeen. Oral arguments were heard in early November. In 2020, there were over 11,000 Native American children in state foster care. At the heart of the case is the Indian Child Welfare Act or ICWA. It became law in 1978. The bill was passed to address centuries of destructive government policy, including the forced assimilation at those boarding schools. ICWA established federal protections for indigenous children in the foster system. It required state courts to give foster and adoption preferences to families first. Second, preferences go to members of the child's affiliated tribe. And third, preferences go to people of other tribes. But today, the justices are weighing how this case would change the adoption and foster care process for indigenous children. These children are 
in the U.S. They have a relationship with an Indian tribe over which we have recognized for over two centuries. I don't think we would ever allow Congress to say that white parents should get a preference for white children in adoption or that Latino parents should get a preference for Latino children in adoption proceedings. Congress understood these children's placement decisions as integral to the continued thriving of Indian communities. The case asked the question, is prioritizing Indigenous candidates over non-Indigenous people during the adoption process a form of racial discrimination? The lead plaintiffs are the Burkins. They're a white couple from Texas who adopted an Indigenous boy. The child is a citizen of the Navajo Nation. The Burkins fostered him for years before adopting him. They argue that ICWA made the adoption process difficult. They believe ICWA is antiquated. Here's what their attorney said during the trial. This is treating children as property. But many indigenous adoptees are in favor of ICWA, even those who grew up with supportive parents who were not indigenous, like Hillary Tompkins. I'm from Navajo Nation, and I was born in Zuni, New Mexico, back in the late 60s. Hillary was adopted by a white family in South Jersey. I always knew I was different. Feeling like an outsider was hard. It was very segregated in the region. It was white communities and black communities, and that was it. And so I was this anomaly. I remember being asked, what am I? I definitely remember kids teasing me, saying, are you from the Save the Children commercials we see on TV, being mistaken for being Asian, just like constantly having to explain why I was there and what was I. It definitely just felt like I'd been placed in a different planet and everyone thought I was an alien. That also meant growing up without Indigenous role models. Her parents were amazing. They understood she was dealing with a lot, but they didn't experience it themselves. So I think there was a lot of me just having to adapt on my own. And they definitely like instilled pride in my culture and would give me books and jewelry and Navajo rugs and talk about how you're going to go back to the reservation someday. But they couldn't help, not protect me, but they couldn't help give me enough comfort and love to make that feeling of alienation subside or be tolerable. Indigenous community members are watching this case closely, including the Onondaga Nation in upstate New York. Its general counsel, Joe Heath, explains why the ICWA legislation was enacted in 78. Because it was a horrible, tragic history. Whenever we're discussing indigenous issues, we always need to think back into history as to what has happened over the last 400 years here in New York State, particularly. He says when ICWA was put into law, one third of all indigenous children had already been removed from their homes and placed in non-indigenous homes or institutions. That's the problem that the act was intended to begin to correct. He says it's worse than that. Between the 19th and 20th centuries, there were about 350 federally funded boarding schools designed to assimilate indigenous children. 
Historians say when the government forced children into these schools, they were often mistreated. They were put on trains and sent across the country to military-style boarding schools. They were forced to cut their hair and change their names. They went hungry and were beaten for speaking their native language or participating in other cultural practices. And so we had people like Colonel Pratt setting up the Carlisle Indian School. That's an infamous school in Pennsylvania. More than 10,000 indigenous children attended through the years, and more than 180 died on campus. The deaths were usually connected to abuse, malnourishment, or disease. The whole purpose there was to kill the Indian, save the man. Much of the same racist mentality drove this removal of Indian children from their homes. And so that was the problem that the act was intended to and to a relatively good percentage to address. We can't continue to justify the removal of one third of children from Indian homes, particularly when it's less than a generation after all of these boarding schools. He says ICWA was needed because states were not doing a sufficient job protecting the rights of indigenous children. The act does make certain that from the very beginning of a case that involves an indigenous child, that that child's nation is notified so that they can have a say as to what happens relative to that child. It also contains a very, very carefully worked out set of procedures that are designed to protect the interests of the Indian children involved in a way that was never in place before. He says the Onondaga Nation has dealt with at least one ICWA case involving siblings. They've seen how it keeps indigenous children connected to their communities. The children's aunt was able to become their foster parent. Had it not been for the Indian Child Welfare Act, those children might have been yanked out of the foster home that they were living in on the nation. They were attending the nation's school, learning the language, and attending ceremonies. All of these important cultural aspects that kept them attached to their historic roots to the Onondaga Nation. In the federal case, McGill argued that by giving indigenous people priority, that's racial discrimination. The placement preferences is at best a set of stereotypes about what is best for the child that has Indian ancestry. Heath disagrees. Because the reason that one third of children were removed from Indian homes was the white supremacist assumption that Indians can't raise their children. It's an argument that is offensive, but also there is a strong, long record of Supreme Court decisions that say that preferences for Indians are political and not racial. For instance, there are hiring preferences in some federal laws and hiring preferences for Indians in certain situations. The reasons for those are just the same, historical, and trying to make up for some of the tremendous harm that the dominant society has had on indigenous people. And for them to argue that it's a racial preference ignores a long history of clear Supreme Court rulings. 
He says the people of the Onondaga Nation are dealing with the uncertainty, but they are nervous. They'll do what they can to be heard about it, particularly to help people understand the impact that it has on them. And then they'll understand that they will have to keep keeping on, as we used to say. They will be here. They will protect their children. Frank Edwards is a Rutgers University assistant professor. He studies child welfare systems and says this law protects children who are members or eligible to be members of their tribe. It's effectively the same as asking if the United States were to go to Denmark and to try and take babies from Denmark. The the Danish government might have something to say about that. And in this case, we expect Cherokee Nation might have something to say if a white family tries to adopt a Cherokee baby. But the plaintiffs say that ICWA harms these kids. The Indian Child Welfare Act deprives Indian children of the best interest of the child test. It replaces that test with a hierarchy of placement preferences that puts non-Indian families at the bottom of the list. The Burkine's attorney also argued there's too many Indigenous kids in the foster system to have tribal placement preferences. There are fewer than 2,000 Native American foster homes. That means each year, hundreds, if not thousands, of Indian children are placed in non-Indian foster homes. And sometimes there, they bond with those families. Yet when those families try to adopt those children, ICWA rears its head for a second time, allowing tribes to play the proverbial ICWA trump card at the 11th hour. Miguel specifically challenged the third placement preference, which puts a child with an indigenous family who belongs to a different tribe, not the tribe of the child. Placing a seminal child with a Cherokee family doesn't rationally advance the existence of either tribe. Texas, one of the plaintiffs, argued that ICWA, quote, has not achieved its stated ends of approving stability and security among the Indian tribes, unquote. They also say that indigenous kids who are covered by ICWA are at a greater risk for abuse and neglect compared to other kids. Professor Edwards says that's false. We see quite the opposite. Child welfare agencies around the country have filed in support of amicus briefs that demonstrate how the Indian Child Welfare Act is the gold standard for child welfare policy and child welfare law around the country. It enshrines the kind of placements that we know are best for all kids. That is placements with people who are members of their family, people in their communities. If ICWA were to get overturned, Professor Edwards thinks it would impact the overall U.S. child welfare system. Today, we still see Native kids taken into the foster care system at higher rates than their non-Native peers. We see in some states that those rates are as high as one in three. ICWA, though, provides protections for kids who are known to a family court to be members or eligible for membership in a tribe. It provides protections to them and allows a tribe to seek jurisdiction over that case. When that happens, that child is taken out of the state or county child welfare system. So what I would expect to see happen if ICWA went down is a rapid increase in the number of Native children we see coming into state and county child welfare systems. Those protections are keeping kids who don't need to be in foster care out of foster care. They're keeping kids who don't need to be in institutional group homes out of institutional group homes and residential treatment centers and the kinds of places that we know that really ugly things can happen to children. 
We'll be right back after this quick break. Welcome back to In-Depth. I'm your host, Jill Webb. There's been a lot of conversations on social media recently about interracial adoptions. Adoptees of all races and ethnicities have been discussing their experiences. This has led to a larger conversation around cultural differences in adoptive families. Hillary has these kinds of conversations with fellow Indigenous adoptees. When I meet people like me, like we get each other right away. She calls this cohort grievers. We're like constantly kind of grieving a loss. As an adult, it's typically an adult that I'll meet and talk about this and kind of like, what have you done with your life? Where, where are you now? Are you okay? Hillary was able to reconnect with her roots when she went to college. My father said, you know, you should apply to Dartmouth. They have a program for Native American students and it's part of their founding. It changed her life. I'm actually now on the board of trustees. It's like coming full circle to a place that was my first opportunity to connect with Native students to take Native American study classes, learn about Native history, learn about the unique political status of tribes. And then eventually it led me back to the reservation to reconnect with my tribe and with my family. Going back to the reservation wasn't easy. It made me see how much I had lost in terms of language, cultural fluency, and a sense of belonging to a tribal nation. I was a citizen of the tribe. But she says she didn't understand the political and societal rules which are based on culture. It was painful, but also life-changing. I met my birth family, my mom, and that was really powerful. I learned my clan, which is a really important part of Navajo society. I started working in the Navajo courts. I took the Navajo bar exam and uh, worked for the Navajo Department of Justice, started to understand that I had rights as a citizen of that nation. Not every adoptee ends up reconnecting with their tribe like Hillary did. It's actually in my Navajo culture. It's called like finding harmony. And I finally have found that. It's called uh, and that means I'm at peace, even though you have struggle and you have love and goodness and together you reach that harmony. I meet a lot of adult adoptees and they're still trying to find that. Today, Hillary practices environmental energy and tribal law. Between her legal knowledge and adoption experience, she believes ICWA should remain law and offers this nuanced perspective. It allows the tribal nation to have an informed participation in the placement of Native children. And I can tell you that tribal nations are looking out for the best interests of their children. I just think it shows a profound lack of understanding about what it means to be a tribal citizen. If you take Native children away from that and where they have no understanding of it, they can't be full-fledged participants in those tribal governments. I, for instance, can't run for office at Navajo because I'm not a fluent Navajo speaker. I can vote in the elections, but I don't understand, you know, the political stump speeches that are all in Navajo. 
She says that holds people back from being part of self-governance in a full-fledged way. That's where people don't understand how this is a really distinct legal status that's at issue here. There is a lot of worry about how ICWA would affect children if removed. Here's Professor Edwards again. When we look at the child welfare system in the United States, American Indian and Alaska Native children are placed into foster care at higher rates than children from any other group. He says it's traumatic when you remove a child from their family and community. He says it should be the last resort. Only when the immediate safety of the child is is seriously threatened. There's a long policy of forced separation of Indigenous children from their families in the U.S. This was an effort to forcibly assimilate Indigenous children toward white and Christian ways of being. It was an effort to erase Native cultures, and it was an effort to erase Native nations, largely in the interest of seizing the lands that Native nations continued to control during that period. Now, after the boarding school era closes, we move directly into an era up through beginning in the 1950s and 1960s, coordinated by state and federal government in cooperation with organizations like the Child Welfare League of America to engage in the mass fostering and adoption of indigenous children. Before the ICWA legislation, there was a big investigation. There was a congressional investigation that found that Native children do dramatically better and fare dramatically better psychologically, socially, emotionally when they're kept within their communities, kept with kin, kept with other members of their nation, and found that the federal government really had an obligation to step in and change what was effectively a free-for-all in terms of taking Native children and placing them with white families. The investigation and hearings in the 70s also found when Indigenous children were being adopted to non-Indigenous families, there were lots of issues. There has been a phenomenon of intergenerational trauma in Native communities that experienced mass separation during the boarding school and fostering era, that the sort of erasure of culture, the erasure of ties, and the survivor's guilt that often plagues those who didn't directly experience this, but but saw it, and the children of those who experienced these kinds of traumas, it's incalculable. We see profound effects on mental health, physical health, and on community and family well-being as a direct function of the federal, state, governments, and religious organizations' efforts to eradicate Native cultures. When you eradicate someone's culture, you're also eradicating their foundation for being human and being in community. Many are concerned a change in ICWA could undermine tribal sovereignty. In short, tribes fear if the indigenous adoption process becomes based off race instead of affiliation, that makes room for other tribal laws to be challenged. Professor Edwards says the big takeaway is that ICWA protections are as urgent today as they were decades ago. Native kids are still being taken from their families at exceptional rates, much lower rates than they were prior to the passage of ICWA, but but at exceptional rates nonetheless. And I think it's incumbent on us to not only protect the protections that exist under ICWA, but to consider expanding them. As this plays out in the high court, it's important to keep in mind who this will affect the most. 
Indigenous children. You need to remember that all of our country benefits when we involve Indigenous people respectfully, when we respect their sovereignty, and we work together to make a better future for our children. Those are the principles of the Onondaga Nation that people in central New York have learned benefit everybody. They have a principle that when there's a problem, let's sit down, listen to each other respectfully, and find a solution that's better for everybody. A decision could come as early as this winter, but legal experts say it's more likely to be released closer to summer. Thanks so much for listening. In Depth is a special production of WCBS News Radio 880. If you are enjoying our series, please rate, review, and subscribe. We're on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to producer Dempsey Pilat and audio engineer Andy Egan Thorpe. Famie Redwood is the managing producer of podcasts, and I'm your host, Jill Webb. Closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.